Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Last week we took a little bit of a break uh, to look at Father's Day and really to look at husbands and what it means to be a husband and a follower of Jesus as you lead your family and lead your wives in love, in the Word, in righteousness, in holiness, in serving them, in intimacy. And we're back in Ruth for uh, this week. Um, we will probably, Lord willing, be able to finish Ruth by the end of August. And really, Ruth chapter 3, when we come to Ruth chapter 3, it reminds me, as I read through this several times, it reminded me of one of those pictures that I grew up looking at. I don't know if you saw these pictures. There were books of these pictures. They were just a bunch of lines and dots together, and there were 3D illustrations. Do you remember these things? You would look at them. There would be nothing there, just a flat picture with a bunch of lines, a weird design, squiggly dots, all sorts of strange things. But then if you crossed your eyes and you looked more deeply into the book, you could see a shape. Does anybody remember these things? They're crazy. I remember looking at these, and they would be passed around at school. We'd open them up. We'd look at them. You'd kind of cross your eyes. You'd get a headache. And you'd, you'd see something kind of pop deeper into the picture. And I remember I'd look at it, and I'd go, oh, I, I totally know what this is. It's, a, it's a, a butterfly. And then somebody would say, no, it's actually the Eiffel Tower. Like, I totally would get it wrong. And I would constantly do that, where I'd look, and I'd be confused, and I'd say, okay, I, I see the shape of something. I don't know what it is. Something's there, but I don't quite know what it is. As we come to Ruth chapter 3, you read it and you go, man, something's here, but I don't really know what it is. Something strange is here, but I don't really know what the point of this text is. And I pray that as we dive in together, I'm, I'm excited to dive in together, and I want to do it slowly. This really could be preached just in one chapter, one chunk, and I, it could be, and maybe even it should be, but because there's so much here that's intricate, that's confusing. I, I don't want us to miss anything. And so I want to go slowly through it, and I want to see that something that's there. I don't want us to look and go, something's there, but we don't know what it is. I want us to see the something. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 tells us a little bit about what the something is. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, whatever was written in earlier times, that includes the book of Ruth, was written for our instruction so this passage is going to instruct us. It was written so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Ruth chapter 3 was written to instruct us, to give us perseverance, to give us encouragement, and to give us hope. Four things that we're going to see in this text. Instruction, to give us perseverance, to give us encouragement, and to give us hope. So right off the bat, we can place our anchor into those four things in Romans chapter 15 as we come to a very confusing section of Scripture. We can say, I know we're looking for instruction, perseverance, encouragement, and hope. Last time we were in the book of Ruth, we were left with yet another look at Naomi at a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? There's excitement. Boaz could be the guy that could redeem Ruth and our family together. This is exciting, but nothing really happens. There seems to be between chapter 2 and 3 a couple of months going by. Why is Boaz taking so long to make a move? What's he waiting for? What's, what's he looking for? What's going on between Ruth and Boaz? How often are they talking? Is Naomi even talking to Boaz? What's happening? Well, let's read it together. We'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll dive in and hopefully, Lord willing, answer those questions. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were with? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So wash yourself, therefore. Anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Father, we come before you and we are excited to dive into a, a chapter that has some strange elements. Some of them are cultural. Some of them we just don't really know. But we do know, Romans 15, verse 4, that these things are written for our encouragement to instruct us, to help us in persevering in the faith, and to give us hope. And God, we see that so clearly in the person of Naomi. She has hope, and things have changed. She is living differently. She is seeing things differently. Father, I pray that you would give hope to us this morning. There are many in this room that walk in here with a sense of hopelessness. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's their marriage. Maybe it's their children. Maybe it's an issue at work. Maybe it's some other family issue. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's just feeling stuck. A, a sense of directionlessness. God, first of all, I praise you that they're here. And I pray that you would give them hope. That they would see what hope does to somebody. That it gives them feet. That it gives them wings. That enables them to move. And I pray that you would give hope to our hearts this morning. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes. That we would behold wonderful things from your law. There are wonderful things here. Teach us and instruct us this day, we pray in your name. Amen. This scene, uh, because it's very short, there are really only two sections that we're going to see. We're going to split it up into two parts in verses 1 through 6. The first part is Naomi's peculiar, peculiar plan and Ruth's amazing agreement. So we've got a plan that's pretty strange, and Ruth is going to agree to it. The plan is in verses 1 through 4, and the agreement is verses 5 and 6. Now, just... The shape of this whole chapter, just by way of uh, outlining the whole chapter, and if I were to preach this chapter, just one sermon in one sitting, just one chapter, I'd preach it in three different scenes because there are three scenes that are here. It all takes place between sunset on one day and sunrise the next day. It's all just that one period of time. First is the plan, which is verses 1 through 6. Night hasn't quite yet fallen. The second point of the sermon would be, if I were to do all of the chapter in one fell swoop, it'd be a midnight proposal in verses 7 through 15. Night has fallen. It's very dark, and a lot of strange stuff is going on that we'll talk about this morning. And then last but not least, the sun is rising, and there's a hopeful waiting between Naomi and Ruth. So uh, if we're to take the chapter as a whole, it would just be 
Naomi talking to Ruth, Ruth talking to Boaz, and Naomi talking to Ruth. But I want us to slow down to get a better understanding of what Ruth is about to say, because if you read the whole thing, it is really weird. This is the strangest idea. What is Naomi thinking? Is it a bad idea? I think it's a risky idea, but I don't think it's bad or problematic, but I want to spend time explaining it. So let's talk about Naomi's very strange, peculiar plan here. Verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security? My Bible says security. Some of your Bibles might say rest. Shall I not seek rest for you, security for you? This is the Hebrew word Manoah. It's actually Samson's father's name. It means rest, security, peace, tranquility. You can stop your striving. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 3 has this word. Uh, Judah had gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. And the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, says this, She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. So she dwells among the nations, but she's very anxious. She's moving about. She hasn't found rest. In Genesis, in the flood narrative, remember when Noah sends out the dove trying to look for a place to land, the dove comes back. Noah uses that word. The dove comes back because it had no place to rest where you can just settle down. It's a place where there's security. So Naomi is thinking, this has been great because Ruth has been able to uh, go around with the welfare system of Israel at that time and get food, but the harvest has ended. Tonight, there's a festival celebrating the end of that harvest. It's in the crops have all been brought in. We're done with the harvesting. So therefore, there's no more opportunity for you to get food, to glean from the fields. So Naomi says, I want a more permanent solution. I want a more permanent solution to the widowhood that you are experiencing. I want you to be able to enjoy security. Not just every day wondering, is there going to be food? Is there going to be a place where I can go? So, Naomi says, in essence, I want you to get a husband. I want you to get a husband. Is there a husband out there for you? I want you to get a husband. You remember, if we go back to chapter 1, there's that strange word, the mother's chamber. Uh, that mother's chamber, the mother and the daughter would usually get wedding preparations done together. And so here, Naomi says, Ruth, I want to make sure that you get a husband. Ruth, I want to make sure that you are able to be provided for now, it's very interesting because it seems like Naomi's going to kind of run ahead of God's plan. It's part of our struggle with this passage. It seems like Naomi's encouraging Ruth to go ahead and move forward, but that's not at all what's happening here. In fact, if you think about who would normally have initiated this conversation with Boaz, who would it have been? It would have been Ruth's father, but there's no doubt on the scene, and so Naomi says, I'm going to step in and be that person to help, to lead, to guide. She's not a scheming mother-in-law deserving criticism. She's a caring mother-in-law who doesn't want her daughter to be in to go without and to be in need without provision. So Naomi takes the initiative here, and that is striking to note. We have never seen her take the initiative because she's been in despair. We've seen Ruth saying, hey, should I go? Hey, should I see? What should I do? But Naomi, for the very first time here, says, I'll take the initiative. What? Why is there a change here? It's because there's hope in Naomi's heart. Last chapter, she says, there's an opportunity here that this man could redeem us. There was hope. Hope has changed her sight. Remember, we said suffering can blind your eyes to seeing the providential hand of God. 
But now that she has hope, she sees God's providential hand. Where once she was blinded by her suffering to see the providential hand of God, now she's seeking it out. She has hope something good might happen. So she says to her daughter-in-law, I want to get a husband for you. Verse 2, and I have a husband in mind. Boaz is our kinsman. We talked about that two weeks ago. He's our kinsman. He's our nearest relative who can take care of us. He can buy the field that we're going to put up for sale. He could marry you. He could provide offspring for our family. Elimelech's line does not have to go extinct. We know that we have security through Boaz. He's the man. So you were with his maids. You know him. You've seen him. Middle of verse 2, behold. That's a huge word in Hebrew. Pay attention to this, is what Naomi is saying. Look at me, Ruth. Listen to me very carefully. I've got a plan, but you have to listen to every word that I say. He's winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Threshing floor would be where you take all the wheat, you put it down. Winnowing is to take that big, huge fork to throw the wheat up into the air. The chaff would be driven away by the wind, and the good stuff would land back down, so you could take all of the good stuff and use it for making bread and use it for cooking and food. He's winnowing tonight at the threshing floor. Tonight's the harvest. Now, how does she know that he is winnowing at the threshing floor tonight? How does, how does she know that? Um, number one, it's a huge deal to have a harvest, especially since there had been a famine for 10 years. So everybody's going to party tonight. This is a huge deal. We have a harvest. We are going to winnow all the wheat. This is an encouraging party of a night. But secondly, I think that she's been thinking this plan through. I think that she has known and put it on her calendar when the day that the threshing floor is going to be occupied by people that are excited, there's going to be a feast. This is a day that's been on her calendar for a while. So she says, he's going to be at the threshing floor tonight doing the winnowing of the barley. So wash yourself, verse 3. Let me tell you to do some things. Number one, wash yourself, therefore. Wash in Hebrew, it's wash entirely. Wash your whole body, not just your face. Wash your whole body. Wash yourself completely. So wash yourself and anoint yourself. Anoint yourself with a, a perfume, an oil or a perfume. Anoint yourself with a perfume. Smell good. One commentator said maybe the, the, the smell of this perfume was Moabite midnight, but this is some form of perfume you're going to put on. You're going to smell good. So wash yourself. Put some perfume on. One commentator says it this way, spirituality is no excuse for being frumpy. I like that. <laughs> this, that's not piety, to say I'm a pious person, therefore I'm a frumpy person. That's not piety. So wash yourself, smell better. The only time that Boaz has ever seen you is when you are working out in the field. You smell terrible, you probably don't look too good, so wash yourself and put on some perfume. Then it says this, my Bible says, and put on your best clothes. Is that what your Bible says? Put on your best clothes. That's a bad translation, and it leads kind of to an interpretation that, you know, Ruth, be a little seductive. That's not at all what's happening here. Now, wash yourself, make sure you smell good, but it's not be seductive. The word literally is the word for cloak. It's a huge outer garment. So it's not be revealing. It's actually put on a huge outer garment so that you cover yourself up, namely because it's going to be cold that night. But also, we don't want you to just walk around like some seductive person. So 
wash yourself and put on perfume because you don't want to be frumpy, but you're also not wanting to be revealing. There's a lot of people that come to this passage that make it seem like Ruth is trying to seduce Boaz. That could not be further from the truth. She's not trying to seduce him at all. I think it's actually very evident what she is trying to do, and hopefully we'll unpack it together. Um, the reality of what's happening here, there's a, a, an interpretation of this passage that I think is the best interpretation, considering everything that's happening here. What Naomi is telling Ruth to do is to stop mourning her husband's death. Ruth is a widower, right? She's, she has had a husband who passed away. And everybody knew about that. Do you remember when uh, they went back to Bethlehem and Boaz says, who is this person? There's a story that's told. She's the one that went with Naomi who had a husband, but the husband died. She's the one. Everybody knew she is a widow. And therefore, there was no sense of making yourself beautiful, adorning yourself, maybe even sackcloth and ashes time of mourning. There's a question about this idea of a cloak, and some people would even translate it, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but translate it to say, no longer wear mourning clothing, but put on garments that say, I'm no longer mourning. I don't think that that's what that word is signifying, but I think that's what this whole thing is signifying. You don't have to mourn the death of your husband anymore. And I think that lends us to an understanding of why Boaz hasn't made a move yet. I think there's a couple reasons why Boaz, Boaz hasn't made a move. Number one, he's significantly older than she is. And I think that he's, as he's going to say at the end of this chapter, I think he's going to say, man, I thought you were going to go after somebody younger. So I, I didn't want to make a move if you wanted to go after somebody younger. I wanted to let you make your decision. But secondly, I think he was waiting for the time of mourning to be over. I'm not going to jump in and say, I am so sorry that you lost your husband. Would you like to get married? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait. And I think he's been patiently waiting. I think he's been expectantly waiting, wondering when is this time going to happen? I think that's the background of what's happening here. So Naomi says to Ruth, make sure when you go to Boaz tonight, you inform him in every way, shape, and form that you are available, that you are no longer mourning, and that you would like to get married. That's what she's asking Ruth to do. Now, go down to the threshing floor with your cloak. Don't make yourself known. This is the uh, doctrine of being a ninja. Um, go very, very stealthily. Go carefully. Be a ninja. Go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known until he has finished eating and drinking. I love that so much. We could stop there and spend the rest of the sermon on that. I love that she says, you are going to go talk to this man and you're going to ask him some things and you're going to talk to him about some things that are super important, but don't do it until he's eaten and he's happy and he's sitting in his lazy boy and he has gotten all of his work done and he has a big smile on his face. Then say, hey, by the way, can we talk about something? Don't, I love Naomi's wisdom here. Don't just, just throw this huge thing on him in the middle of his working, right? He's winnowing. Hey, I've got a question for you. Hang on one second. I'm working. No, this is just at peace. This reminds me of Esther. You remember Esther? Uh, she goes before her husband, the king, throws a party. She has a very important question to ask him, and she throws a party. And at that party, apparently the, the time is not right because she throws a party waiting to ask him this question and doesn't ask the question. And then she says, let's throw another party tomorrow. Throws another party, and at the end of that party, she goes, hey, I've got a question for you. Can I ask you a question? I love the wisdom in that. 
Be patient. Wait. Wait until he's eaten. Wait until he's drunk his fill. He's not going to be drunk. Again, a lot of strange commentators say, Boaz is drunk. He's not drunk. We have seen very clearly the character of this man. He's not drunk. But wait until he's done all of his work. He's eaten a good meal. He's washed it down with some good wine. And he is happy. Wait. Then, verse 4. This is all kind of strange. But verse 4 gets weirder. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies down. This is important. Make sure you notice that it's Boaz you're going to talk to and not some other stranger. This is why you have to be a ninja. Look, make sure you see Boaz and where he lies down because this would be a very bad idea if she does this with some other dude. So make sure you know where Boaz is. Lie down at his feet. Uncover his feet and lie down. Uncover his feet. Feet. The only other time that this word is used in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, which speaks of the lower limbs, the feet, and even the thighs. What is happening here? (laughs) Show up where this man is sleeping and uncover his feet and then lay down next to him. What is going on here? In essence, let's start from the big picture and work down to the smaller. What Naomi is asking Ruth to do is proposed to Boaz. She is saying, go make a proposition to Boaz. Now, there's some cultural aspects about this, but I don't think that this is a cultural practice of making a, a proposal. Uh, some commentators say, this is the way that proposals were done. No, we don't see it anywhere else in the Old Testament. We don't read of it, of this kind of thing, extra-biblically in the Old Testament time period. So I don't think this is a common cultural practice. I don't think that when... Boaz wakes up that we'll see in a couple weeks. I don't think when he wakes up, he goes, oh, she's proposing to me because she has to say words. She has to tell him, this is why I'm here. Hang on, this is strange, but this is why I'm here. So let's, let's ask some questions. These are the questions that I had of this text. Number one, what in the world is going on here? What is happening here? And I think the label across that is Naomi is helping Ruth go propose to Boaz. Next question, why doesn't this happen during the day? Why not just take place during the day? Why not just say, hey, when you go see Boaz, just talk to him. Why, why do this now? A couple of reasons. Maybe it would have been strange for Ruth just to go up to Boaz during the day. She was probably just gleaning in the fields, didn't have much contact. She just doesn't walk up and talk to him. She would have to be picked out by him. Hey, can I talk to this person who owns this field? But maybe it's not a normal practice for her to go talk to Boaz. Maybe there wasn't a time that Ruth could have been alone with Boaz. Maybe Boaz and that guy that he talked to in chapter 2 are always walking around with a, a ledger of how the field's doing and how, much, how many crops are being brought in. And Ruth doesn't want to go up and say, may I please speak to this man alone? She doesn't want to make this awkward. Not to mention that this is her announcement of saying, by the way, I'm done mourning the death of my husband. I'm available. She doesn't want that to be done in front of everybody. She wants to say to Boaz, I'm available, and I want you to be the first person to know. That's what she's trying to communicate. So if she just shows up at the, the field gleaning, and she has completely changed her, her smells and her wardrobe, and she's looking different and smelling different, and she's cleaned her hair, and she's washed up, everybody's looking at her going, wait a second, something's changed here. What's going on? Ruth doesn't want that. She wants only Boaz to be able to see her this way. So why not? Just during the day. Why does it have to be at midnight? I don't think that she wants to put him on the spot in the middle of the day. I have a proposition for you, Mr. Boaz. Can we talk secretly behind closed doors? I don't think she wants to do that. 
I think that she wants to also, with a little bit of secrecy here, she wants to talk to him before the other kinsman that we're going to look at in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, before he even knows that she's available. I think she wants to say, Boaz, I want you. I don't want this other man. I want you. She wants to let him know that. Why now? Why does it have to be now? Why can't it be another night? Why does it have to be this night? Um, There seems to be urgency because what's going to happen after this night is over. No more gleaning in the fields. No more communication between Ruth and Boaz. This is it. And I think Naomi and Ruth have been waiting. Is he going to make a move? And I think that they're probably thinking she's... He's not making a move. He's not communicating because, number one, he's older. And number two, he still thinks that you're mourning the death of your husband. So let's go tell him I'm not. I'm available. Why hasn't Boaz said anything up until this point? He's older. He's going to say, man, I thought you were going to go after somebody younger. And I thought you were going to go after somebody, if, if it was going to be an older person, somebody richer than I am. So he's kind He's especially considerate knowing that she's mourning the death of her husband. So he's been patient. He's been kind. He's just waiting. I don't, I don't want to ask a question that would cause tears. I just want to wait. And Ruth is going to say, hey, don't need to wait anymore. Now, this is a very dangerous idea. This is the end of the, the judges, right? This is the period of the judges. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Middle of the night. A woman who has just bathed and who is wearing perfume, walking down to the threshing floor, anything could happen. You remember the end of Judges, right? Bad things happen. This is a dangerous idea. This is a risky idea. This idea is all built on the foundation of Boaz and his character. Naomi, we don't even have evidence that she's talked to Boaz. We don't have evidence that she's even had a conversation. She just hears through Ruth, Boaz is an amazing man. So this entire plan is built upon the character of Boaz. What happens if when Ruth uncovers his feet and Boaz wakes up, he doesn't have any godly character and he does something immoral with her? That would actually jeopardize everything that Naomi is trying to do because according to the Mishnah, which is a commentary on Jewish laws and customs, if a man had been involved in a sexually immoral relationship with that specific woman, then he could not become her kinsman redeemer. He had completely nullified any potential of becoming that kinsman redeemer. So sin would have destroyed the possibility of this even happening. But Naomi trusts his character. He trusts his, she trusts his character so much that look at the end of chapter 4. Go uncover, or the end of chapter 3, verse 4. Go uncover his feet, lie down, and then I don't know the rest of the story. <laughs> He'll tell you what to do. I I know he is such a godly man with such character that I've got the beginning of the plan, but he'll figure out the end of the plan. She doesn't even know how this is going to work out, but she knows this man has character enough that it's going to work out well. There's a lot of suspense here. What's going to happen? There's a lot of strange things going on. This is a very strange idea. This also puts Ruth in a very strange light, potentially. Boaz is going to spend the night on the threshing floor. There's two reasons he would spend the night on the threshing floor. He'd sleep around the harvest that they had just brought in. Two reasons. Number one, uh, robbers would come into the threshing floor and would steal a lot of the food that was just brought in. I don't have to do the work. They did the work for me, free meal. Here we go. So uh, Boaz is trying to say, no, no, I want to make sure that I protect my, my food. The second reason is the threshing floor was known in that day for being a place of immorality. Prostitution would happen there. 
because we have just partied, we've, we've had a festival, this has been a great day, and we're celebrating the end of the harvest. All of our work has been done, let's celebrate. A lot of immorality. And Boaz is a man of character, so he says, number one, I don't want my crops stolen, but number two, I don't want anything bad going down here. I'm going to make sure that this is a place of righteousness, not of sin. But prostitutes would walk into the threshing floor, seductively so. So what if Ruth just shows up and some man says, well, let's go somewhere else because I know Boaz doesn't want this right now here. Let's go somewhere. This is a strange idea. Naomi is putting Ruth into a really weird situation. It's risky, but can I plead with you to not think of it as risque? It's very risky, but there's nothing seductive, sexually immoral about what's happening. Even the way that we're going to see it in a couple weeks, the way that Boaz responds to Ruth is with purity. It's amazing the way he responds. So it's a risky plan, but there's nothing seductive going on. No hint of moral impropriety. Ruth is attractive. She's not seductive. She's not wearing revealing clothing. She's wearing this enormous cloak around her. But it's still really strange. And this is the part of the sermon where I think it would be helpful for us to stop for a couple of reasons. Number one, God often works in strange ways. Just think about some of the heroines of the Bible. Esther, talked about her already. There were some weird things that went on in her life. And yet God used her in amazing ways to save the nation of Israel. Think about Mary. We talked about Mary in Sunday school this morning. That's a strange idea. God says, you know what? She's going to become pregnant through no means that are natural. It's a supernatural thing, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then she has to tell people about that. I wonder how many ladies tried out her excuse when they found out they were pregnant. Oh, remember Mary? Remember she got pregnant by God? Me too. I got pregnant by God. This is a weird thing. God works in strange ways. This is risky, and Naomi knows that, but there's nothing risque about what's going on. The second reason why I think we need to stop, and here's where we're going to, I want to give you three kind of application points as we close this section out. I think we need to stop because as we've been learning in Sunday school, we have to read narratives correctly. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to study this book, is learning how to interpret properly Old Testament narratives. So, first application in conclusion here, first application for how to read Old Testament narratives. And please, by the way, this is not the main point of the passage, okay? The main point of the passage we're going to get to, and our third point, these first two points, I just want to help you as a pastor, as somebody who loves the Bible and reads the Bible, I want to help you learn how to read the Bible correctly and help others learn how to read the Bible correctly. So number one, do not interpret narratives as normative. Do not interpret narratives as normative. Just because something happens in a text does not mean that we should do that. For instance, this is not the way to go about dating. (laughs) Don't take your cue from chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and say, well, it's in the Bible. So I want to get married. I'll figure out where the person that I want to marry sleeps. I'll be a ninja. I'll walk into their room. I'll uncover their feet, and I'll sleep there. And when they wake up, they'll tell me what to do. This is not what this verse is saying. And the majority of Old Testament narratives are not to be taken as a prescription for how we're to live our lives, but a description of just people living their lives. 
This is not a prescription on how to date properly. That leads to the second. So not only don't interpret narratives as normative, number two, don't create a model of dating or courting from this passage. Don't create some model or pattern of dating or courting from this passage. And can I, can I elongate that? Don't create a model or dating or pattern, or a model or pattern of dating from any passage in the Bible. There's no passage in the Bible that gives you a pattern or a model of how you should go about dating. Here's nine that I found. If you want to find a wife, Deuteronomy chapter 21 tells you to find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her fingernails, give her new clothes, and she becomes your wife. So go find somebody like that. That's a, that's a, that's a narrative that is not a prescription for how to get married, right? Exodus chapter 2. Find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock in front of him. If you don't like the prisoner of war one. Here's one, Judges chapter 21. You guys remember the end of Judges? Find a party, go hide at the party, and when a woman shows up that you like, grab her and take her home and marry her. That's not the way to go about doing it. Genesis chapter 2. This is my favorite one. Just go to sleep and God will make a wife. It'll cost you a rib, but God will make you a wife. Just go to sleep. Genesis chapter 29. Agree to work for seven years for a man's daughter, get tricked, work for another seven years, and wind up with two wives and a whole lot of problems. <laughs> it's a bad pattern. 1 Samuel 18. Cut off 200 foreskins of your future father-in-law's enemies, and you'll get his daughter as your wife. Would not suggest doing that. Esther chapter 2. Become the emperor of a nation and just hold a beauty contest and pick whoever you want. If you want to get married, do that. Become the emperor of a nation. Judges chapter 14. When you like somebody, just do what Samson said. Tell your parents, I like her. Go get her for me. That'll work. <laughs> and then Ruth chapter 4 that we're going to get into in a, in a few weeks. Just purchase a piece of property, and along with that property, a wife will be thrown in as a part of the deal. So go house hunting. You don't have to look for a woman or a man. Just rent.com, find a place, buy the place, and you'll get a woman or a man along with. The reality is there is no biblical model for dating. There's no biblical model. There are enormous biblical principles, but there's no biblical model for dating. In fact, Proverbs tells us, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. He has to find her somehow. But God leaves that up to our own deciding and determining how do we find this wife? How do we find this spouse? You cannot make narratives normative. Don't turn a story into a prescription of this is what we do now. It's a description. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. Dating, courting, there are wars that happen over this in the church. Neither are forbidden in Scripture, neither are commanded in Scripture. Both are biblically acceptable. What's not acceptable is dating without any purpose, with no intentionality, and for the purpose of just self-gratification. So date, court, find a spouse intentionally. Do it with intention and with purity. But every decision that we make in life, including how we're going to go about dating or courting, falls into one of three categories. Either it's, thus saith the Lord, with a chapter and a verse, do this. Secondly, it's, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not, with a chapter and a verse, don't do this. So it's either do this, don't do this, 
or every other decision falls under the matter of conscience. Every other decision. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, every other decision falls under conscience. There's principles that guide it, but it's conscience. So let's not make narratives normative, and let's not try, number two, pull out a model of dating from this. There's no model, there's no pattern of dating in the Bible. There's principles that guide it. Now, those two application points are not the point of this passage. In fact, I think Samuel, who wrote this, might be saying, can you please get on to the right point of the passage? That's not why I wrote. I didn't write so that you would tell your people that there's no model of dating in the Bible. I think it's helpful to stop there, so I'm sorry, Samuel. But let's move on to the real implication. Here's why I think this is included in our Bibles. If I could say it just easily, trust God and do something. This is what we're told from Naomi in these verses and what follows. Naomi is following the provision of the kinsman redeemer that was given to her by God. This provision is something that God had passed down, and Naomi says, that's the provision, I trust him, and I'm going to act on it. I'm going to act on it. She believes in the sovereignty of God, and this is exactly what somebody does who believes that God works. We work, and God works. We work because God first works in us. There is chronology to this, yes and amen. But sovereignty is not a license for passivity. Sovereignty is not an excuse for inactivity. Naomi, all the way in chapter 1, knows that God is sovereign. But I think she's been struggling because of a lack of hope. She's been struggling with, should I even do anything? I know God's sovereign. Should I even work? Should I even do anything? And here in chapter 3, she says, God's sovereign, and he's working, and he's orchestrating all these things with Boaz, so we're going to work too. We're going to work too. For us, personally, trust God and do something. We, we believe in the doctrine of God predestining those that he will save, electing and choosing before the foundation of the world. There's no going around that in the Bible. It's clear. But just because we know that that's the character of God and his choosing and his sovereignty doesn't mean, great, there's elect people in this community and they'll come into our church eventually. No, no, we go out and we tell. Because God's working and electing people, we work to go share the gospel with them. Trust the Lord and do something. It's very interesting to see how Naomi here has changed in the way that she first did something. Remember in chapter 1, she did something by going to Moab, but she didn't act on the promises and provisions of God. She said, I know God is sovereign, and he's promised and provided things for us, but we're going to go and do our own thing. She acted, but she didn't act by trusting the Lord and doing what he had done and aligning herself and Elimelech with the provision that God had made. Here, she says, let's look for God's provision, kinsman, redeemer. Let's look for God's promise to care for us in these means, and let's act according to that. So don't just trust God and do something. Trust God and do something according to the promises and provisions that he's given to you. And in order to know those promises and provisions, you have to know this book. You have to know this book to know where is God calling me to walk now. He's sovereignly ordained that I should do something. What is it that I should do and walk in? Trust God and do something according to his provisions and promises. What's changed between chapter 1 and chapter 3 in Naomi? What's changed is hope. She didn't have hope at the end of uh, chapter 1 and even at the beginning of chapter 1. Seems like they exhausted all their options. We're going to die. There's a famine in the land. We have no hope. So they went their own way. Here, she has hope. Johnny Erickson Tata writes this, who is a, a quadriplegic from a diving accident into a pool. 
She said this, I remember reading of a quadriplegic who had given up. He had served as a pastor, but an accident had paralyzed him from the neck down. He had reached a point where he no longer wanted to get out of bed. He wanted the lights turned out and the world to go away. And out of desperation, his wife called me and said, my husband feels useless and hopeless. We need help. So I called him. I responded by dialing 411 and tracking down Ron and Beverly's phone number. I gave them a call. Beverly answered the phone, and I shared with her that I had received her email. I talked and prayed with her over the phone, and finally I asked, any chance your husband, Ron, might be wanting to talk to a fellow quadriplegic? She was delighted that I was even interested. She knocked on his door, and he allowed her to tuck the phone receiver under his ear. And although he would not respond, I talked a little bit of shop about quadriplegia. I wanted to move beyond those topics, however, and bridge the conversation to spiritual things. I thought, this man's a pastor. Surely he knows the Word of God. So I started to share with him several favorite scriptures that have sustained me through the toughest of times. Still silence on the other end. I even sang to him, nothing. Finally, I did the only thing that I could think of that I hadn't already tried. I asked Ron if he'd ever seen the Shawshank Redemption. Why, yes, I have, he said. I couldn't believe it. He responded. So I went on, Ron, do you remember the letter at the end of the movie and what it said? I think so, Ron said. It said this, Ron. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Ron, there are 10,000 other quadriplegics, just like you and me across America, not to mention those uh, who knows how many are beyond the borders of this country, and many of them are lying in bed this morning wondering whether or not they should, like one of the lines in the movie says, get busy living or get busy dying. Ron, I'm going to make the choice to get busy living today. Would you like to join me? And Ron said, yes, ma'am, I do. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Naomi's hope is rising in her heart, so she's going to get busy living. She's going to trust God and do something. She, she trusts God so much that she entrusts her future and her daughter-in-law's future to God and to a man who's going to be waking up from sleep. But we're going to do something. We're going to trust God and we're going to do something. Just like the old hymn says, he gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He gives us hope. That leads to the second point, very briefly, Ruth's amazing agreement. Verse 5, she says, all that you say I will do. So she goes down to the threshing floor she did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. What's going to happen? This is a strange, risky plan. How is it going to pan out? We will find out next time we study Ruth together. Father, thank you for hope. Thank you for the glory that we get to savor in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your sovereignty enables us to get busy living in our despair, we wake up sometimes and we think we should just get busy dying. But God, you've given us hope through the gospel. And because of the gospel, we have reason to trust you and do something, following along with your provisions and your promises. So Father, I pray that you would give hope to our hearts this morning. <clears throat> give hope to the hopeless, encouragement to the faint-hearted, and rest to the weary. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.